Uh, welcome to Seven Mile Road. Once again, my name is Sibby. I'm going to be speaking to you today. Um, so this is the uh, second time I'm speaking, and so we'll see what happens. <laughs> I had to speak over at St. Mark's in the morning, and that was very interesting. They have this huge seat on stage that just looks like a throne. Um, so I felt very special this morning. Uh, bear with me this morning as we talk through, once again, Jonah. Uh, if you're new here, we're right in the middle of the series. We've called it We Are Jonah. Um, we've already gotten through about six weeks of talking through this book that is full of surprises. Um, every turn, there's something unexpected that happens. What you expect to happen is never what turns out. Uh, so to recap some of what we've been talking about, some of the drama of the book, um, the story starts out with Jonah refusing to shoulder his prophetic commission from God to go to Nineveh to preach the news that he has given to him. So he runs the complete opposite direction away from Nineveh to Tarshish to board the ship at Tarshish. He falls asleep on the ship while a violent sea storm is raging outside. He then gets thrown overboard by pagan mariners who, by the way, later come to God. A great fish swallows Jonah and he actually writes a song in the belly of this great fish. Jonah, who should be dead and gone by now, who is this rebellious prophet who did not, did not listen to God, should be dead by now, but now God has put him in this, this fish, saves him through this fish, and now he is, he is in a totally different state of mind. He gets vomited out of the fish onto dry land, completely covered, gets called by God yet again to go back to Nineveh and preach. So now he goes to, to Nineveh to deliver this message of, of destruction and, uh, and almost wrath, goes to Nineveh, there is a mass conversion in Nineveh, and God relents from destroying this great city. And so we read through all that, we read through the first three chapters, and it sort of seems like the entire story of Jonah is sort of like a 4th century B.C. soap opera. There is so much going on, there is so much drama, you can almost mistake it for sort of the biggest Hollywood thriller you would see with all of the lights and action and the, the, the sea raging and all of this. It's... It's incredible the stuff that happens here. Every chapter you turn, something new happens. What you see is not what you would expect. And so it's even in this four chapters before we talked, it's just, it takes up two pages of these black Bibles in, the, in your pews. Just two pages. But in these four chapters, you see that it is just full of stuff. We are taking 10 or 11 weeks to talk about four chapters. I remember when we first sat down to talk about it and prep for the sermons, I, I thought he was crazy. I thought Jay was crazy. How would you possibly get 11 sermons out of these four chapters? But now, as we look through, we see that there is a ton, not just in Jonah that we see, but now we are starting to see that there is a ton in Jonah in ourselves. And so we're seeing parts of our lives being exposed throughout these weeks. It's one of the smallest books of the Bible, but as we have seen and will continue to see, this book is more than just about a, a sinful or rebellious prophet or a, a pagan mariners or a sinful and evil city of Nineveh. We see that out of all of the prophetic books, most, for the most part, these prophetic books would focus on the message of the prophet. They'll talk about what the prophet's message is to the city or to this, this group of people. But in this book, while it is a prophetic book, seems to focus so much on the prophet himself. We've seen in this story that God is not only after the evil city of Nineveh that is full of sin, that is full of immorality and, and, and wickedness, but He is also after a pious and holy, holier-than-thou kind of figure, Jonah. In fact, as you read through the book, you see that Nineveh, while it's a great story, 
only takes about seven of the 48 verses that are in this book. And so the, the whole message to them, their repentance, all of that, that entire story is just found in chapter 3. Seven out of the 48 verses in this book. But even though it's such a small story, we, we saw last week what an incredible scene this is. Last week we saw the repentance of Nineveh in chapter 3, as we'll summarize in a moment, but we've seen that just as God is after this rebellious prophet, just as God is after the pagan mariners, just as God is after a wicked city of Nineveh, so we've been seeing that God is still pursuing us in the process as well. So whether you are here, you don't believe in God, whether you are here, you have been Christian all your life, you're the, the, the poster child for Christianity, or whether Jesus and all this stuff is new for you, I want to say that God is pursuing us today, just like He's pursued Jonah, Nineveh, and, and the pagan mariners. Um, through Jonah's story, as we've titled the series, we are seeing more and more, week after week, that we are seeing Jonah in us, and it hurts. It hurts to see that this guy who we cannot even stand to read about, we're starting to see parts of him in us. And we've spent about six weeks in three chapters. Now we're going to spend one chapter covering this one chapter in about five weeks. So we, we can tell that this chapter really means a lot. The way that we look at Jonah chapter 4 is going to be very crucial in how we understand the entire book. And so one commentator actually said it like this, that the first part of the book of Jonah is sort of like a, a rehearsal for the second part. What you see in the second part really prepares you, or what you see in the first part really prepares you for what you're going to see in the second. And so as we open up the book of Jonah, there's a lot to consider, a lot to think through uh, over the next several minutes and over the next several weeks and in our life to come as we apply Jonah, the story of Jonah, to our lives. So let's pray first and then we'll approach God's Word together. God, we thank You for being such a good God that, Father, despite our sins, despite our flaws, despite the Jonah-likeness inside of our own lives, that, that You still use us, You still love us. And even as we've seen last, yesterday, as, we, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, as You've been using our church and, and the missionaries of this church for Your Gospel, Lord, You are using people like us who are unworthy, unqualified to do Your work. We thank You, Father, for considering us to do Your service. And as we sit under Your Word today, Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would convict us. Father, where it hurts, where we see ugliness inside of us, Lord, convict us. May we not just come in and leave without this Gospel transforming our lives. May we not just come to church, do the Bible studies, listen to the sermons, and do all of this without any of it changing us, God. So we ask from our hearts that You would change us even this day. Father, use my little words to somehow be, be transformed into something greater, Father. May it not be our words that you hear or that we hear. May it not be our works that are seen, Father, but above and beyond anything that we are, God. May your glory shine. May your name be lifted up, Father, even this day. In your name we pray, God, to a holy God. Amen. Ah, so we're in Jonah 4 today. Um, before we consider this text, uh, let's recall what happened last week in chapter 3. And so if you would, just trek with me for a minute. We don't have to open the books right now. But like we said before, though the scene in Nineveh uh, takes but a few verses in this book, it was an incredible scene of God's work. 
in order to appreciate how insane, how crazy it was that Nineveh actually accepted and came to God, we've been talking through about how evil Nineveh really was. We've been talking about how Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was a great city, a large city. It was a popular city. It was a populated city. This place was known to harbor the most cruel people in the world at this time. I mean, you're talking about people who would conquer, and the way they would do this is by killing babies and torturing people and raping women. The most vile, wicked people you can imagine in the world at that time. Assyria, Nineveh. And Nahum actually calls Assyria a city of blood and lies. This place was wicked. It was a bad city. And so it's this awful city that God calls Jonah to go to and preach. It's no easy task. It's not a small thing. It's a big, big deal. So immediately when we think of, of Nineveh and how evil, wicked it is, we think back to Jonah chapter 1 and say, okay, we get it, so this place is evil. Maybe it was fear that caused Jonah to not listen to God and retreat. Maybe he was scared of his own personal safety. Maybe that's why Jonah ran from God to Tarshish. He didn't want to die, and who could blame him? He, he values his life, as he should. We read through this entire series of events in Jonah. Trying to, we, we see Jonah trying to avoid the command of God in every way. He tries and goes to every length to avoid this command from God. And then we see in chapter 3, that he ends up going to Nineveh after this whole series of events and the fish and the mariners and the storm. He can't run from God. He actually ends up in Nineveh, vomited by the fish onto dry land. He goes to Nineveh. And so he can't run from God. He goes there, speaks the word of God to these people, this vile and unholy place. And to our surprise, they actually receive it. They don't kill him. They don't stone him. They don't throw him overboard like the mariners they they actually take what he is saying they believed God and so last week we talked about how it was that they actually believed God and not necessarily Jonah Jonah's sermon was eight words but somehow God used this sermon to reach the people of Nineveh and they took it they believed God all of them it says in 3 5 from the least to the greatest they accepted him they heard the message put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, called a fast, and asked God, hoped that God would relent His anger upon them. And if, it's, if that's not enough, we move on. 3, verses 10. All of this happens. God sends the message. They want to be free of God's anger. And so we look to verse 10. And gracious, compassionate, merciful, loving God relents His anger. He actually does it. Um, it's, it's incredible what God has really even done here. We talk about the evil of Nineveh. God, it's, it's, it's almost if He doesn't see any of it. He looks the other way and says, you've repented. Your hearts are contrite. You, you, you want me. You want my salvation. So here you go. Freely, here you go. Take it. And so a city with at least 120,000 people that consists of murderers, idolaters, adulterers, and in one day... They all turn to God. 120,000 people. That's a lot of people. The king himself gets off of his throne, takes off, of his, takes off his robe, sits in ashes, calls a fast, and he himself calls out to God. And God hears him. God relents of the evil. The city is spared. They are saved. It is truly a beautiful sight to see. And so now we think, chapter 3, that is amazing. Chapter 4 has to be 
bound to be a chapter that is full of celebration, full of joy, full of festivities. That has to be what's following in, in chapter 4. There is bound to be a great feast for this great thing that has happened. Bring out the best wine and, and the fattest calf and the brightest confetti. Let's throw the biggest party we can because 120,000 sinners have come to God. And these aren't just any sinners. These are the worst of the world. They've come to God. A feast, a great celebration has to be bound to happen. And so, it should be hosted by this prophet Jonah, the messenger of God. But if you've followed our preaching guide for this series called We Are Jonah, this week we are, we're calling this week's sermon A Great Hatred. And so you wonder, okay, if this, if this great party is bound to happen, I don't get the, the punchline. How is it a great hatred? Why would you call this week a great hatred? Some great stuff has just happened. Why a great hatred? It should be a great joy or a great celebration, a great festivity, something why are we calling it a great hatred? While the entire book of Jonah has been a collection of unexpected surprises, things that you would not expect, there's nothing more surprising than what we're going to see than what we're going to see in chapter 4. So Jonah 4, 1 to 4, we'll read it together. It's in page 775 in your Bibles, in the Black Bibles. Jonah 4, 1 to 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You're relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Have you ever watched a movie that has all of this hype, should lead up to some incredible ending that has great satisfaction and closure? Instead, it builds up and it's totally anticlimactic. You, you get to the end and you realize, I've just wasted two hours of my life watching this movie. And so you don't see the family reuniting or you don't see the couple getting back together. And for some of you, I don't want to ruin the movie, but you watch a movie like Inception and you get to the end and you're wondering, I still don't get it. What, what happened? You get no closure. And so you wonder if there's any way you can get the last two hours of your life or the last six weeks of our lives back as we've been looking through this book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is like that movie. Why don't we see the great celebration? Why don't we see a great festivity of this amazing miracle that has just happened? We'd almost wish that the book ended at chapter 3, that it'd be better off if a chapter 4 didn't even exist, Okay, don't worry about the celebration. We don't even have to do that. But why would Jonah react like this in chapter 4? Jonah is actually angry at the fact that, that the word that he delivered to the Ninevites actually took root in the hearts of the Ninevites. I mean, isn't that what you would want? Verse 3 shouldn't exist. Therefore, take my. it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to follow any logical sense. Sort of like a firefighter being angry that the, that the fire was contained or a soldier being angry that his mission was a success. It does not seem to make sense, this, this, this passage in Jonah. So why do we get this response from Jonah? Some theologians would say that the reason Jonah reacts to this in the negative way, they have a few ideas as to why he's doing this. Some suggest that 
It's because of Jonah's insecurity of his credibility as a prophet. So you'd imagine that if Jonah preaches that Nineveh will be overthrown to 120,000 people, that message doesn't actually come to fruition because they repent and God relents. He looks like a liar. And so you can sort of imagine Jonah off in the corner somewhere with those glasses with the mustache on saying, I hope they don't recognize me. I hope they don't look back at me and say, we repented, he relented. You are a liar. What are you talking about? God will overthrow. And Jonah was very familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 8 where it says that if, if a prophet says something, says a word, and that thing does not come to pass, then that prophet is a liar. What he said was false. He made it up. And so he was very well aware of that passage. Some say that it's not necessarily Jonah's insecurity of his credibility, but they say that it's a more admirable reason. Maybe it's that Jonah actually did not want God's name to be ridiculed. He assumed that when he preached to the Ninevites, God's mercy and compassion and, and love would inevitably fall upon the Ninevites because he is a good God. And if they repented, then afterwards they would call God a liar, not necessarily even Jonah. And so he did not want the mouths of ungodly and profane men to discredit his God, his God. While these two views, I guess Jonah's credibility and, and God, Jonah's concern with God, may be, there may be some weight to that, but I, I think there's something beneath the surface that may be more of concern to us, or that may be underneath the surface of Jonah's heart and reaction to what, what has just happened in Nineveh. And so we read through again verses 1 and 2 of Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I yet was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He sort of ends that with disappointment. Not praise, not worship to God, but disappointment. We, while reading that, are you seeing what Jonah is starting to say here? We sort of rewind our mental film reels back to chapter 1 and we think, okay, now, now we begin to see it. We begin to see what is going on with this pathetic prophet Jonah. He heard the word of the Lord come to him in Jonah 1-2 saying, Arise, go to Nineveh for this evil city. Its sin has come up against me. And he totally, totally freaked couldn't bear the fact of what was about to happen. He wasn't scared or frightened of dying at the hands of the Ninevites because, in fact, if you look back at chapter 1, he's the one who actually surrendered his life to the mariners and said, throw me overboard into this raging sea. If he were to go into it, he would probably die. So it's not necessarily fear. And then if you look up at chapter 3, when Jonah delivered this message of, of doom to the Ninevites, he didn't do it in a soft way. He didn't say... Friends, I, I come in peace, and I, I have some news for you. It's not the easiest to take, but in about 40 days, you guys are going to be overthrown. Sorry about that. Um, so, yeah. No, he said eight words that were the worst words you can possibly hear. He said, doom, destruction, in 40 days, you guys are going to die. And he didn't give any hope after that either. So it's not necessarily that, that Jonah was fearful of his life. It also wasn't that God wasn't able to save the people of Nineveh. Jonah didn't have a fear of God's unableness to save because in 4.2, Jonah 4.2, Jonah basically says this, God, I know you. I know your nature. I know who you are. 
I know that you are softy for people who when they repent, you will let everything go as if nothing happened. And that you would relent of your anger and, and, and take in their sins and blot it out like nothing ever happened. I know who you are. Jonah wasn't scared. Jonah didn't doubt God's mercy and compassion. In fact, it was the very mercy and compassion of God that made Jonah angry and to run from God's call in the first place. Why? Because now we see in chapter 4, we realize that Jonah hates Nineveh, despises them. He wants nothing to do with them. The very, when he hears their names, he just gets disgusted. Jonah despises them, does not want them to be saved. That's why he ran. Because he knew that God was a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah has in him a mentality that says, I love that God has mercy and grace for me, compassion for me and my people. I love that he would be patient with Israel and forgive us over and over and over again despite our sin, despite our idolatry. I love that, that his love seems so generous to me and to my people Israel. But that God would show the same grace, the same mercy, the same compassion to a filthy, vile city like Nineveh, I will not stand for it. I will not stand for a God who does this. It's amazing. Jonah feels betrayed by God for not destroying Nineveh. He, he feels betrayed by God because now he's seeing a picture of God that is completely foreign to him. He was not even slightly concerned for the people of Nineveh. Perhaps if God destroyed Nineveh, he would run home in delight and have a party for that. But saving Nineveh? does not want anything to do with that. Jonah could not rejoice in the fact that an entire city had just come to God because of his bitterness towards Nineveh and its people. This was big. This was huge. This, this city was great. The city was evil. The city was wicked. And of all of them, have, having received God's grace, wouldn't you think that Jonah would at least say one hallelujah or one praise God? Something that we often these little cliches that we use, he would say something to give praise to God, but nothing. Sort of a counterfeit praise in chapter 4, we'll see. What happened in Nineveh was big. St. Clair Ferguson says this, men would give their right arms to see what Jonah saw in Nineveh. It was huge. Some would argue that the Ninevites coming to God was perhaps the greatest revival in history. We see now that Jonah was a hardline exclusivist, racist, and by his exclusivist sentiment, he proved to consequently be a great, great hypocrite. By his sentiment of being racist, we see that he is a hypocrite, and we'll see that now. But Seven Mile Road, I really would love for us to really think about some of this. I want us to hear this and really welcome the weight of conviction to rest on our hearts, both you and me. Because there's a lot going on here, a lot going on in the heart of Jonah. We don't come into church weekly. We don't listen to the sermons. We don't listen to the worship songs and sing along or recite the creed or go to Bible studies. We don't do all of this just to leave and have none of it affect our hearts, none of it affect our lives. If we base our lives on this thing called the gospel that we base even this church on, 
Can we really sit under its authority without it transforming us? Can we really listen to the words that are being proclaimed week in and week out and not have it transform our hearts, our minds, our lives, the way we live outside of the four walls of this church? For us who are merely religious like Jonah, can we put down the gavels that we hold in our hand and look at Jesus to see how our lives really should look like? Can we not stand as judges anymore and say, okay, I get it, God. I get it, Jesus. I confess to you that in my life, that when I look in the mirror, I see a lot more of Jonah than I do see Jesus. I see a lot more of hypocrisy, wickedness, evil, racism, exclusivism, all of this stuff. In the words of John Calvin the Reformer, though my works may be regarded with God, they are sprinkled with stains. They really are. And I feel like that's probably the case for all of us. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all made. We are sprinkled with stains, though we may be regarded by God. And so I really want us to lift our hearts together, confess before God, and ask Him to change our hearts. And it is difficult because the more we see Jonah in our own lives, the more we see the ugliness of who we are. The more we realize Jonah in our lives, the less we want to really move on with the story. The, mess, the less we want to tie up the loose ends and say, okay, I'm just going to ignore chapter 4. I'm good with the first three chapters. We don't want to tie up the loose ends because when we do, we realize that what's in Jonah is in us very much so. We try to avoid those things because they're harder to address. We try to avoid them in, in, our, in our conversations with each other. We try to avoid the big elephants that are in the room because it's hard to talk about them. As we see traces of Jonah in our lives, the ugliness of who we are will really come to surface. We begin to see racism. Very real racism. We begin to see discrimination. We begin to see hypocrisy on so many different levels and so many different heights. Anytime we become confronted with sin in our lives, denial is often the immediate response. And it is for me too. We try and downplay it or justify it. We try to make excuses for it and say it's not really a big deal or convince God that our stance is even right. That's what we see Jonah doing to God. We look. We see in chapter 4, Jonah contends for a just reason for his flight to Tarshish. He tries to convince God that he is right and God is not. It's foolishness. Jonah appears to even use Scripture in chapter 4 too. Quoting from Joel and Jeremiah and Exodus, he tries to justify his stance on this whole issue and he tries to make himself feel better, almost sort of like a pity party, but really it's, it's stupidity. It really is. Jonah's complaint to God in 4 verses 1 to 3 is in stark contrast to what happened in chapter 2. If you recall, in the belly of the fish, Jonah says something similar in theme. He, he is giving praise to God, thanks to God. He is sort of giving all of this adoration to God, saying His attributes, but the way He does it in chapter 2 in the fish is completely different than the way He does it in chapter 4. He's on a roller coaster of emotions, happy one moment and completely angry to the point of death in the other. He has deep issues. This guy has a lot of things inside of his heart. And ironically, the themes that, that drew forth Jonah's praise in the Psalm of Jonah 2, ironically, they are, they are the very things that cause him grief in his second prayer in chapter 4. And Jonah sort of, if you would think, there's sort of like two columns that Jonah has, pros of God, cons of God. 
In both of these columns, he puts grace, mercy, compassion, and love, the pros. And in the cons, he puts grace, mercy, compassion, and love. And he sort of says with one breath, love, mercy, grace, compassion of God, I praise you for that. And then he says with the same, love, mercy, grace, compassion, that disgusts me. I don't want that. And so Assyria may have been an enemy to God. Jonah loves that. Jonah loves that, that God said this thing in, in chapter 1 of destroying them. But what he did not understand or want to come to terms with was that God loves his enemies. He's loved us. Jonah didn't understand this concept. He really didn't get it. And his, his entire picture of God sort of was shattered at this moment. It's as if God, the God whom he was serving all this time, now looked completely different. He's saying, sure, I love that God is compassionate and generous in mercy, but to me and my people, not to anyone else, not the outsiders, we are the special ones. We are the chosen ones. God's grace is for us. Why care about these pagans elsewhere? The book of Jonah is not merely about reciting historical facts. It seems as if the author who wrote this book is very concerned with the Jewish audience who is hearing this. He wants the people hearing this to really understand some certain truths. He wants the people hearing this for their minds, their understanding of who God is to be revolutionized. He does it on purpose. He does it deliberately. In fact, scholars suggest that the, that the author who wrote Jonah was probably telling his story first before this group called the Sad. The Sad was sort of a, a group of guys who would get together, sort of like a campfire kind of a setting, at, at their leisure just to talk. And this, this group of people will probably consist of, of sort of self-righteous and self-centered Israelites who did not realize the universal nature of God's mercy. So the first time Jonah said this, it's probably around this time, or at least that's what some scholars would say. So Jonah, like his audience, then feels superior to those outside of their community. He was a Hebrew. He was a prophet, an Israelite, one who believes in God. The Israelites now have been through a lot. They've gone with God on their journey. And now this foreign people, they're coming in to destroy everything. The least deserving, the least worthy, the, the least qualified, they're coming in now, invited to join God's, God's family and join the table now. To call an Assyrian Ninevite, Jonah's brother disgusts him. He cannot stand it. Jonah feels that he is better than them, that the Israelites are superior to them, that he is better to judge who deserves grace rather than God is. But what about Israel? We'll consider Israel just for a moment. What about Israel? Are they really better off than Assyria? Jonah can't bear to understand the fact that maybe the way that God looks at Israel isn't so different from the way he looks at Assyria. Because we see later on in, in the books of in the books of uh, Hosea and, and a few other books, Amos, God actually refers to the Israelites as God's enemies. To Jonah's dismay, God was not only for Jonah. God was not only for Jonah's people. J to Jonah's dismay, God did not revolve his world around Jonah. Jonah's arrogance was dangerous because Jonah's view of God was so narrow. It just looked down one line of people, one group of people. It was dangerous because the way he thought about others, the other people of the world made him discriminate. It put him in a heart of discrimination and, and racism and exclusivism. The way he looked at the world was not the way that God looked at the world. 
Neither Nineveh, neither Nineveh nor Jonah deserved the grace of God, yet God gives His grace to both of these people. Jonah is literally alive after the storm because he received mercy from God. Jonah was glad about his rescue, but angry of Nineveh's. The author of this book does not write obliviously to the hypocrisy that is evident. He wants to give a sympathetic representation of what the Gentiles are like, or he wants people to realize what is really going on here. He wants us to wrestle with the fact that rebellious Israel, who has in her history seen the compassion and grace of God, is now completely turned around and does not want to see any of that applied to anyone else. Look out at the world, pleads the author. Look at the world through my eyes, through God's eyes. Jonah, once again, as we've said over and over again, looks like the elder brother once the prodigal son is returned. Doesn't want anything to do with the celebration, doesn't want anything to do with the festivities, but he's just sulking in the corner, saying, how have you forgotten all of this, Father? How have you forgotten that my brother has gone and sinned, come back, and now you completely forget everything? Move on to verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, to die, than to live. Jonah does not agree with God. He can't stand what he stands for. He feels more holier than God himself. He could not understand grace being extended to these pagans. He says, are you kidding me, God? Really? Is this really what you're doing? Might as well kill me. I, I cannot stand for this. He would literally die, rather die, than to stand for this nonsense. And so when he says this, this sort of death wish, the ears of the, the audience hearing him sort of perks up because it's reminiscent of something else that we see in 1 Kings. His death wish is sort of reminiscent of what Elijah talks about in, in 1 Kings 19.4 where, where Elijah says, Take my life away. But what Jonah doesn't add is what Elijah said afterwards. He said, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. Jonah takes that side out and he says, it's better for me to die than to live. And so now the Israelites, these Jewish people, they're listening to this and they're like, you're not, Jonah. You're not Elijah, you're Jonah. How could you dare take on the mantle of Elijah? This guy didn't think that, that he was qualified for service or able to do service. You're, you're a missionary whose mission has succeeded and now you want to die because God has graced this people with mercy. Jonah is not Elijah and the audience listening is well aware of this. One commentator says, what monster is this Jonah that he could think to use, to use scripture, to use biblical themes to justify his position in, of racism and exclusivism? What monster is this? Moving on to verse 4, we see that God does not give Jonah an, 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 uh, a question or he doesn't necessarily say that you did this wrong or he doesn't necessarily say that you are a hypocrite or a racist. He asks him a question. He says, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And sort of we're thinking in our minds, is God just not aware of what's going on? Is, is he just curious of what's, what actually happened? Is he really concerned that Jonah doesn't really get it or what, what is going on in God's head because we say, God, just tell Jonah, you're a racist, you're a hypocrite, you're an exclusivist, you, are, you do not get the gospel, you do not get grace. Just tell him how it is. Why are we dragging this on any longer? But God says, no, this is the way I want to do it. I want Jonah to realize the error of his ways. And so then we think back all the way to the garden 
God is known for doing this. He asked Adam and Eve, where are you? Why? Who told you you were naked? He asks in the story of Cain and Abel, where is your brother? Who killed him? Move on to Job. He asks him a myriad of questions, bewildering questions as to why Job is reacting the way that he is. You move on all the way to the New Testament. Jesus asks Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? And now we see in Jonah that he is asking Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And later on we'll see a few more questions. God doesn't simply want to preach at Jonah. He, wants, he really wants him to wrestle with and realize what is going on. And don't forget that God has just saved 120,000 people. It's sort of like in the background, these people are saved completely free and ready to accept God and they're rejoicing. And for some reason, underneath this tree, or, under, or wherever this area is, God is entertaining this, this guy, Jonah, this rebellious prophet, when he could be over there really just in the midst of these people and for some reason he is concerned with this rebellious prophet. How incredible is that? That God, despite in the midst of all that greatness that is going on, he is still concerned with Jonah. Friends, I really want to say that we... We really are like Jonah. That's not just a catchy phrase. That's just not a cliche that we're throwing around with this series. But we really are like Jonah. We like our comforts. We like, we like what we know. We like who we know. And we don't really want to go outside of that. We form this sort of provincial, tribal-mindedness inside of our heads that keeps us from loving those who are different from us. When I was preparing, when I was preparing this week for this, I was reading of a pastor who was talking about one of his experiences and he was recalling how he went to his daughter's kindergarten musical and he was watching all of this and she was dancing laughing and having a great time with the kids on the stage but this pastor was sitting in the audience completely saddened in his heart because what this pastor was seeing was that sort of tried to see what this little girl was seeing because some of this, his daughter's friends were of mixed races some of them were white some of them were Hispanic some of them were black some from wealthy families, some from poorer families. Some from single-parent homes, some from families who have been together forever with happily married parents. Some who are physically uncoordinated, some who are very athletic. But to this little girl, this little kindergartner, none of these differences mean anything. But by the time she gets to high school, the pastor explains our culture will have tried to convince her to join her own kind to join cliques, cheerleaders with the cheerleaders, nerds with the nerds, jocks with the jocks, artists with the artists, blacks with blacks, whites with whites, browns with browns. We say that the rich should be with the rich, the poor with the poor, blue collar with blue collar, white collar with white collar. They may be told, maybe even by their parents, that the smart kids should associate with the smart kids and leave the slower ones to sort of fend for themselves and group among themselves. Movies, magazine covers, TV shows will all influence them to believe that beautiful people should be with beautiful people and hang out with beautiful people and not go outside of that. And the less attractive people, they will be with themselves. But what lies this is. This is not the gospel. This is the gospel of, of what Jonah believes the gospel to be. The sin of Jonah was that God wanted to show grace and mercy to a people unlike him, but Jonah did not want any part of it because of his personal feelings. And this is really at the core of all of us. 
Maybe on different levels, maybe in different ways, but this is at the core of all of us. His Spirit leads us. His Spirit convicts us. It guides us. But there's something in us that we push it away. We say that maybe that's not God. Maybe I don't need to do this. That we think that what God wants for us is maybe not what's best for us. We know what's best, and so like our fallen father Adam, we play judge and determine our own fate. We make excuses and say that as long as we are thinking good things, we should be good. We should be fine with just that. I'll share a personal experience this past week that I had with this whole thing. Um, I'm just now starting to consider possibly moving into the city, somewhere in the city. And I was checking out a few places just preliminary this week. And so the, the person who was showing me this place was saying how she's sad because she was sorry that Section 8 housing has sort of moved into the area and has sort of changed the culture of this region and was saying that it's, it's sad that, that the city has decided to do this in this area. And so for me, I was disappointed in myself, not because what of, of what she necessarily said, but because after she said it, I started to justify in my mind, yeah, that, is, that really is sad, that Section 8 housing, that these people are going to get homes with these people who may be better off. I started to think these thoughts that I later realized were absolutely ridiculous. I'm not telling us to say where we live or how we live. I'm not necessarily saying any of that. You wrestle with that for yourselves. But what I am saying is that the way we view the world, the way we view others, the emotions, the attitudes we have of others, you're kidding yourself. We are kidding ourselves if we don't think that these attitudes, these emotions we have of others will not affect the way that we treat them, the way we engage the culture around us. The gospel does not call us to be fashionable, to be in groups of people that are better than others. That is, that is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is the story of God sacrificing himself for others and grouping with people irrelevant of who they are, of where they've come from, what their education is, what their view on life even is. We make jokes about people for their differences, no matter what it is, and do not realize the effect this is having on our feelings towards them. I met a man this week at Starbucks, nice guy, really sweet guy. He's been all his life, he's probably 56 years old, been around religious settings all of his life. And um, nice guy, we had a gr great conversation. He's actually uh, had interviews with the Dalai Lama, the, the Pope, uh, Mr. Rogers, um, Henry Kissinger, all these, all these people. And so we had a great conversation for about an hour and a half. And, I, I told him, I didn't agree with, with everything that he was saying. I told him, I don't agree with everything you're saying. He's, he said, I, I wish, I hope you don't. And, but we had a good conversation. And in this conversation, he was telling me, and he's not a Christian, he was telling me how he's viewed Christianity. And he said this, he said this to me, and it really convicted my heart. He said that in the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible, most Christians would be like the religious person who walks by the person on the floor. And in today's time, that person on the floor would most likely be a gay woman. That it would be the Christian that would walk by this person and not pay any mind to them. And so that may not be the exact parallel that's talked about in this parable, but there may be some truth to that. Um, this past week, we do these doubt nights every other week. We've been talking about that. We showed uh, a documentary called Lord Save Us From Your Followers. And there are a few few of you guys were there, on it were interviews and clips of people 
outside of the Christian community, expressing a distaste for the Christian world because of their attitudes towards them. We showed it to both Christians and non-Christians. And it was convicting. It was very, very convicting for our hearts. Most of us live in this city or, a neighbor, or somewhere around the city, a nearby suburb, somewhere close to the city. And I admit Philadelphia may not be the cleanest. It may not be the prettiest. It may not have... It may not have low crime rates like some other places. It may have high murder, high poverty rates. There may be sex trafficking literally happening in our backyard. We will often, like Jonah, have the tendency to want to run away from all of this. Or will we actually engage it with God's love and truth? Our reason for leaving places like Philadelphia and other cities often revolve around families and what's comfortable for us. Not saying that's wrong. You wrestle with that for yourselves. Some of those reasons may be valid, but how often do our decisions like these revolve around the gospel, around what God may want to do through us to a city like this, through us for this city? And this is part of my struggle as well. How am I wrestling through some of this? It really is difficult to talk about some of this practical stuff. I've read read of one Christian woman who said this, offered some clarity to me. Christians need to remember that given God's mission, they exist for the city. The city does not exist for them. I personally love the city. I've been here all my life, but five months over in Dubai, but pretty much all my life I've been here. But even for me, what drives my love for the city It's more about the restaurants or the feel or the culture or the way I like walking through the streets or, I don't know, going to the Ritz over at uh, an old city. Those are the things that I like about the city. But what really actually drives my love is not always about the evilness that is in the city and the chance that God may be able to show grace to this people. So whether you love it or hate it, what is your heart behind that? Jonah in verse 5, we'll close in a minute. Jonah in verse 5 literally goes outside of the city, makes a shelter for himself there, sits underneath it, and waits to see the fate of Nineveh. One more quote, James Montgomery Boyce says this, Jonah creates his own domain in the shade where he will be at peace according to his own measure, just as Christians try to make a church according to their own measure. It is not the body of Christ, it is a divine kingdom according to their own measure full of intentions which are good and effective and well-constructed, but which are only a fresh demonstration of their autonomy in relation to God. How have we constructed our churches to look like? How are we constructing this one? Are they more bearers of our own image and what we look like rather than that of God's? This us and them mentality is not only seen in Jonah, it's seen in various parts of the New Testament. The Jew and Gentile tension is so complex In Galatians 2, Paul recalls strongly opposing Peter in Antioch when he seems to be retracting away from the Gentiles when the Jews come on the scene. Peter sort of goes away from the Gentiles, acts like he doesn't know them, and Paul says this to him, that Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Romans 10.12 and Colossians 3.11 says that it it says that whether Jew nor Greek or Gentile or whatever you are, slave or free, it's all the same to Christ. Instead of a great party in Nineveh and in the New Testament we see here, there is great oppression. Jesus reminds us also in Matthew 5 
that it is easy for us to love the people that we are used to. To love our enemies is something totally different. To love our brothers that we know is easy. I mean, even the pagans do that. Even the Gentiles do that. Loving those, those whom you hate or despise or could just do without, that is what the heart of God is about. Our cultural tendency is to surround ourselves with mirrors rather than with windows to see only what we like, to make church about what we are about. We form clans of people who talk like us, think like us, act like us, view life like us. While Christians should be the ones that resist this tribal-mindedness, we often look like the same. We say that we believe in the courts of heaven, that we will be filled with all colors and ages and sexes and all of this, but practically, how do we live that out? We are called to be on mission, but our mission field often looks like ourselves. If we actually realize the gospel, the cross, and Jesus, if we actually get it, we would realize that no, no one, not one, is better than us. In fact, in many cases, we are worse because of our hypocrisy. Grace given to us must make us grieve for those who do not deserve it or do not have it. The lenses through which we view the world, the glasses that we put on, they should not be colored with race or culture or style or socioeconomic status. They should be covered, they should be seen through the blood of Jesus. We should see the world, see the world that Jesus sees through His eyes. It is completely different from what we are used to, what we're drawn to, what we like. And I want us to feel deep, deep conviction, and I really do. But also, talking through all this, while we are disgusting and vile like Jonah, while all of that may be true, we are not too far from God's grace to reach us so that we may reach the city. If the only thing we feel about Philadelphia is disgust and anger, its filth, its godlessness, its increasing gay population, or its liberalism, if that's the only thing we feel, God may still save the city because He did with Jonah for Nineveh. Isn't that amazing that despite Jonah's sentiment, despite Jonah's attitude, God still uses him? Have you ever heard people say that God cannot use dirty vessels? Piper says this, that that, that is well meant, but that is very overstated. What was Jonah? He was wicked. He was evil. He was selfish. He was racist. He was angry of God's mercy. He was a hypocrite, but God used him to save an entire city. So us, we may feel hate. We may feel like racists or as people who have no idea how to love the world the way that God loves the world. And I know it is difficult, but know that despite us, God can use us to reach a city for His kingdom, for His glory. So Seven Mile Road, I want to ask you and I just a couple of questions. What is it that brings you here? What is it that brings us to this church? What is it that ties us here? What brings you back? Is it common ethnicity? Is it a common culture or way of viewing life? And for those of us who may not seem like the majority here, what would make you leave? Is it because you don't look like those around you? What if for all of us, something entirely different brought us to this church? What if it was something different that went outside the bounds of race and gender and culture and the way we view life? These different social milieus that we view life through. What, it was, what if it was something completely different? What if it was the gospel? 
What if the gospel was what gave us identity? What if it was the cross that bridged all of these divides? What if we, like Jesus, were to approach those whom society would reject and engage them on a personal level, though it meant that we would have to give much of our time, much of our resources, much of our energy and comfort away? What if our co-workers saw us with people whom they would not approve of? What if our family members came to our homes and saw people at our dinner tables whom they would not want there or expect there? What if we went to the movies and people would wonder what in the heck are bringing these two people together? What if it, we weren't so worried about saving face but rather concerned about God's amazing grace that could be shown to Philadelphia? What if, like Jesus, we simply didn't care about what is expected but we cared about what is right and true to God's nature for a lost city like Nineveh, like Philadelphia. The problem of Jonah existed in the New Testament, out in Nineveh, and it exists now, but God, God is greater than all of that. The gospel is more powerful than any of these things that may hold us together, for these things actually bring us apart. Jesus is greater than this and has died so that men would draw near to Him. Our city is like Nineveh, it's a city of lost people, of evil. And we are even part of this city. We often have hypocrisy in our hearts. It's a city that's not expected to come to Jesus. So like I said before, there's a lot of application here, but I really want us to continue the conversation of what it means. What it means for us to address openly racism. What would it mean for us to really talk openly about some of this stuff? Will we just continue ignoring our city or will we let the gospel transform us? Let's not be a community that is closed off to those who are different from us. Let us embrace just as God has embraced us into His family.